Welcome to The Point. I'm Indy Todd. Today it's Bird News with Mark Faraday, Science Coordinator at Mass Audubon's Wellfleet Bay Wildlife Sanctuary. Morning, Mark. Good morning. All right. A little slow. Stormy weather usually means visitors at the bird feeders. Kind of wondering what folks are seeing at their bird feeders this morning. So give us a call, 866-999-4626. That's 866-999-4626. Or you can shoot us an email, thepoint at capeandislands.org. What's happening at your feeders this morning, Mark? Lots of birds or what? Yeah, it seemed a little busy. Um, just tip mice and things. Um, overall, it's still been kind of a lower than average year, I'd say, for just feeder visitation in general. <clears throat> but yeah, they you know they know the weather's coming, and so it it seemed it's a more than usual activity this morning. Um, but yeah, everybody should be on the lookout. This is the kind of weather that drives interesting things into feeders. One of those things lately, uh, and this often happens in midwinter. Some of the things that are sort of pushing it by trying to spend the winter here end up at feeders, birds that you wouldn't expect to be at feeders. And the example I'm thinking of right now is something called a yellow-breasted chat. Oh, I love them. It's Yes, and you had one in your – didn't you have one in yes. your yard? No, you know what? This was – it was at my suet feeder, and it was a snowy, snowy day. I looked out, yeah. and that just – because of the snow, I think it looked much brighter than maybe it normally does. I, I was like, somebody's parakeet get out? What the heck is that? <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, it's a yellow-breasted chat. It was very exciting. Oh, they're intensely yellow. I mean, they're they're glowing electric yellow um, at any season, just a gorgeous bird and a weird bird in every way. They're weird taxonomically. They're weird in their kind of natural history. We, we didn't really know what they were. They were classified with the warblers, but we always kind of knew they really weren't a warbler. They're sort of bigger and they acted like mockingbirds and that they nested in thickets and sang these crazy songs. Um, they're very much a skulker though. Um, and, f but they winter in Central America, but for some unknown, unknown reason, some of them come to coastal thickets, especially here on the Cape. And, you know, birders know how to find them. They're in these thickets that are sort of choked with multiflora rose and bittersweet and things like that. Privet. They like berries um, other, too, right? Don't they like berries? They li those are all, those are all berry producing yeah. sh uh, shrubs and vines. Um, and that's what they're eating is the berries. The reason um, I ask you that, Mark, is because yeah. we had a little competition, my neighbor and I. We both wanted that chat staying in our yard. And so I noticed my neighbor was putting berries in her suet, so I did the same thing. I was like, leave, <laughs> leave my bird alone. <laughs> I, lo I love the bird feeder arms race. Um, yes. And so, you know, they're eating the like the, the little tiny rose hips of the multiflora rose or, you know, bite size for birds. And a lot of things eat them, like the cat birds that try to spend the winter here. Um, but again, they should be in Central America. And so, it, you know, it's weird that they're here. And there have been a few that have turned up dead in yards that I've gotten word of in the oh, last wow. week. Uh, but then someone else in Yarmouth has one coming to their feeder. And it's just such an unlikely feeder bird. They just right. don't go to feeders. And so you can tell things are sort of getting desperate midwinter. Maybe the fruit stores are sort of dwindling. Um, so if you see something intensely yellow, I mean, people know. Like, you yeah. don't normally see bright yellow birds in the middle of winter. <laughs> um, other than pine warblers, you, a lot of people get pine warblers at their suet in winter. And there's some number of them that that stay for the winter and a male is very bright yellow and shows up. You're like, Oh, look at that thing. Yeah. And there are the, those pine warblers are traveling around with bluebirds. It makes for a nice combination. If they come by and visit your suet or your, you know, some people put out mealworms and they'll, they'll get those guys too. Um, 
but yeah, just be on the lookout for weird things because the snow flushes things out of the thickets and into yards um, and covers up food sources and just makes it more likely, yeah. just common sense, that things will end up in your yard looking for food and water. And with this uh, wind that we're expecting, we're going to see some dove keys blowing in? I think so. I mean, this is a proper uh, winter nor'easter. Uh, right now, the wind is howling out of the northeast. I went to my favorite website for the wind which is just called windy if you just google windy <laughs> this beautiful website comes up it's a global animation of wind just all over the world and you can project it forward and it's some number of days and it just keeps showing you as a very intuitive animation what the wind is doing <laughs> and it looks like by later today it's supposed to start shifting around to the north already I think first thing tomorrow, you'll see birders as long as it's safe and, um, you know, to drive and all that going to first encounter beach in East Ham at first light, there could be things going by that ended up in the Bay. I mean, maybe even this as early as this afternoon, if it, say, if the outer Cape doesn't get hit so hard and it's safe to go drive around, you know, people might be out. Um, but in the morning, but overall just give the emergency folks time to do their jobs mm -hmm. uh, i think we're going to be getting hit hard for a while this afternoon and so nobody should be thinking about going out storm birding yeah. uh, but i think some people will be out tomorrow morning um assuming it's safe and they could get a show i mean they could get a puffin they could get tons of dovekies yeah. um and so these are these arctic nesting penguin-like birds that can fly they're the flying penguins of the north and they include the puffins that everybody knows, but also dovekies, which are the smallest ones that tend to end up inland and end up at places like Wildcare and Cape Wildlife because they get blown inland and end up in a driveway or a wood pile or something. And then the most common are razorbills and then thick-billed murres and common murres. So these are the alcids, these, uh, again, these flying penguins of the north group of seabirds. Um, and so that's something you could expect. Check harbors tomorrow. There are already some a nice collection of these alcids, uh, and I forgot one, the black guillemot, which you don't typically see here on the Cape so much. You would see that on Cape Anne. They like rocky places. Um, but there's been at least one in Provincetown Harbor, along with a thick-billed myrrh. Photographers have been up there, you know, because they're just paddling around next to the docks. Yeah. It's a great opportunity to, to see these birds that are a winter specialty that are generally hard to see. Um, up close and and be able to photograph them. I think after this storm will be another um, good opportunity to see what else ended up in the harbors um, that got blown in. Mm. Um, but I think I think dove key, be on the lookout for little black and white seabirds in places they don't belong and and other things too. A friend of mine texted me a picture of a thick billed myrrh um, like last weekend or the weekend before, and I was like, where is that? I assumed they were on like a beach in Brewster where they live. But they were in Nickerson State Park in the middle of the woods, and there was a, a dead, thick-billed myrrh on the shore of Flax oh, wow. Pond. Wow. Very strange. Yeah. Um, and so that, you know, it, it happens. And so um, typically it's dove geese, so be on the lookout for them. Get them to wild care. Get them to Cape Wildlife so they can be properly evaluated and yeah. fed if necessary and then released somewhere safe away from 
gobbling great blackback gulls who will just eat them whole. Mm. <laughs> I, we've got a, an email from Cindy who says, uh, we've been traveling to, to Tortola, British Virgin Islands, in the winter for years, and we started bringing a small hummingbird feeder every year. In the early <laughs> years, we had two species of hummingbirds, Antillian crested hummingbird and the green-throated carob, and the small banaquits, is that right, banaquits? Even had the, Bananaquit. Yeah, uh, even had the occasional lizard. Unfortunately, in the last few years, there have been no hummingbirds, and the banaquits numbers have also declined. Any thoughts on why? In the meantime, we are enjoying the banaquits. We wonder if they may be building a nest in a large tree, uh, in a large tree nearby. If they do, do you know how long eggs take to hatch and the chicks to fledge? Wow! Yeah, yeah bananaquit. So, like, like the fruit. Bananaquit. The bananaquits are a classic. Um, I never heard of, sort them. of a... What are they? Well. The, it's a common um, bird throughout the Caribbean, um, and and it's just it's a colorful little songbird that likes mm. flowers and fruit, um, and it will come to feeders like they're saying. I don't know what to say about the hummingbirds except that uh, hurricanes have hammered some of those islands, and I certainly don't keep up with the specifics of every little right. Caribbean island. But there are conservation organizations down there that. Um, we actually have a connection to some of them through Cape Cod Bird Club and have provided some financial support to some um, research and conservation efforts down there. But hurricanes can really do a lot of damage to the habitat because the birds are already, you know, limited to some remnant patch of habitat. Then they're really vulnerable to a storm coming in and flattening that. Right. You, with Human development has gotten the population down to a point where they're vulnerable to a storm event like that. And so. Yeah, I don't know the answer on those particular hummingbirds and that site, um, but I wish I did because that, that would mean that I was spending time down there. Yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> a good like, place I to like be to think today, about isn't it? Yeah. Let's all think about yeah. the Caribbean yeah. islands and, and those hummingbirds beach, yeah. right now. Yes. <laughs> all right. So, but but we do have some. Even though we have snow falling out there this morning, signs of spring. Red-winged blackbirds are singing, right? Yeah, I know. It's funny to think about these. These crazy birds that uh, give us give us hope in February. It felt and like so spring it, yesterday. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. Cape Cod spring. Yeah. So for at least a week now, I've been hearing um, red winged blackbirds singing, and so red winged blackbirds don't completely vacate the Cape and islands, right? They some of them winter here, little flocks here and there, and they certainly winter in Rhode Island and like just to our south and even other. Inland Massachusetts, you can find them, but they're much harder to find than they are in summer and they're not singing generally. And so when they start singing, you can consider that a sign of spring. Mm -hmm. Check it off. The other one, first, I got my first grackles yesterday. Oh. They almost completely vacate the Cape and Islands minus some little flocks here and there. You know, you 9% of us don't see grackles and then somebody be like, oh, I have 25 in my yard and, you know, come a quit or whatever. But most of them leave. And so um, over the last week, I, I think other people have had them. Yesterday were my first. So that's a genuine sign of spring. And then woodcocks are, are tough because some of them spend the winter and some will even display all winter long. There's a place in Barnstable I can think of. Um but late February is typically a time when woodcocks start their little dis their display flights in earnest. And so woodcocks are these little round, they're sort of big for a shorebird. They're like a fat dumpling of a shorebird <laughs> that is 
a woodland thicket bird. It's not a beach bird. They live in they live in woods and the edges of fields and they eat worms in regular old soil, terrestrial soil, wetland soil. And they do these crazy display flights that are object of Woodcock Walk. Every conservation organization, even if they're not really focused on birds, probably does a Woodco- Woodcock Walks in, you know, March and April. But they start in late February. But I've been hearing of some, you know, in J- late January. So things are getting earlier. Things are getting crazier. And it's hard to determine signs of spring when some of the fall and summer birds never left. Mm. And so one of those this year, a very strange thing, tree swallows never left the outer cape completely. I've never seen that happen. Hmm. The vineyard, you know, is warmer and, and will often hold little flocks of tree swallows into into winter. But this is the first time I can remember that it's happened on the cape and particularly the outer cape where, I mean, two days, a few days ago, there were people seeing 11 tree swallows at race point wow. and they're not early. They never left. Hmm. I mean, there were a hundred around Wellfleet into January, at least more, maybe closer to 200. And so I'm not sure what's going on there. They, you know, they can eat fruit to some extent, bayberries, but you know, they seem to be finding insects along the surfaces of the ponds well into January, which was just, just interesting. And, and especially when we've had a lot of cold weather since then, proper winter weather, but they're still there and they're still alive, which is puzzling to me, but they're, they're doing it somehow. And they're a short distance migrant. They don't go to, you know, Columbia, they go to Florida or the Carolinas or something like that. So, um, you know, they can winter relatively far North, but it's very unusual to be seeing them all winter long here on the Cape. And so it's like, what season is it? What is going on? Yeah, Is it spring? Is it fall? Is it what? Did they (laughs) not leave? Are they early? What's going on here? There there just seems to be a lot of that this year with shorebirds too. An American oyster catcher spent the winter on in Wellfleet and a wimbrel spent the winter in Dennis. And, you know, these are not three, someone had three great egrets at Sandy Neck yesterday. Great egrets don't, don't spend the winter here typically. And so lot of that yeah yep it's bird news with mark Faraday this morning 866-999-4626 is our number that's 866-999-4626 our email address the point at cape islands.org we'll have more after break you're listening to the point it's bird news this morning with mark Faraday. 866-999-4626 for your bird comments questions or stories or you can send us an email the point at cape lisa in plymouth writes mark please talk about the latest effort to provide protection for horseshoe crabs when they came ashore to lay eggs in the spring she's reading your mind yeah, right. Because I had, I had added that to the agenda too. Thank you so much for um, bringing that up because it's you know there's a strong connection to birds and we like to talk about all the critters here anyway. And so yes, so you know horseshoe crabs have been around 450 million years and uh, people love them. People remember seeing them as a kid on the beaches and and notice that there aren't as many anymore and ask why. And Mass Audubon and other organizations have been working on this issue for a while. It's 20. 20 plus years, including before my time at, at Mass Audubon, Wellfleet Bay. And there's an important opportunity right now. A lot of things are coming to a head to get better management, better protections for horseshoe crabs right now in Massachusetts and recognize their importance to a lot of declining shorebirds. And a lot of people know about this connection between horseshoe crabs and shorebirds, particularly red knots, high Arctic nesting, beautiful shorebird that in May routes itself 
through beaches from South Carolina to Delaware Bay, be, uh, feeding on horseshoe crab eggs, and then up to the high Arctic to breed. And their breeding success seems to be in part um, determined by how many horseshoe crab eggs they can eat. And so the management of horseshoe crabs down in Delaware Bay states is designed to provide enough eggs for these shorebirds. But that network of sites where shorebirds eat horseshoe crabs continues up here to Massachusetts, uh, but we only see it at Monomoy, which is really hard to get to. Nobody's out there in spring. You need a boat. A lot of the areas are closed. But there, red knots and other shorebirds are still eating horseshoe crab eggs because horseshoe crabs are protected there from all forms of harvest. And so there's an opportunity to get uh, a kind of a common sense, long overdue regulation change passed. Um, that will protect horseshoe crabs from being harvested while they're spawning from mid-April until June 7th. And that's not all of spawning season. You know, it's, it's, it's an important first step. Ultimately, we would like to see the bait harvest go away completely, where they harvest horseshoe crabs, targeting them while they're spawning, which is just not a way that makes sense to harvest a species that you care about and want to have a sustainable management plan. You don't harvest females while they're spawning, but that's what we do with horseshoe crabs and that that needs to stop. Um, and they use them as bait in a whelk fishery, which is a big snail. It's all very complicated. It's, it's a, <clears throat> a big snail that gets harvested in, and exported to mostly Asia and Europe. <clears throat> and they don't need to use horseshoe crabs for bait, but they feel that's the best bait. And so that's why we're taking horseshoe crabs off the spawning beaches. Um, and that the whelk fishery itself is considered depleted and overfished by the state. So a lot of, there are a lot of reasons to, to, that we need to get this done. But we need to start building horseshoe crab populations back, restore their ecological connection to other species like these declining shorebirds. And so there's a public comment period through somewhere around the end of the first week in March. And so you can email... Um, you can either go through the Mass Audubon website. We have a campaign where you can send a letter through our website. If you sort of look up Mass Audubon Advocacy Horseshoe Crabs, um, and you can send a letter to the Division of Marine Fisheries saying, please, yes, please pass these regulations protecting spawning horseshoe crabs. <clears throat> you know, they're important for shorebirds, et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately, um, please develop a plan to phase out the bait harvest altogether. It's unnecessary and it's standing in the way of recovering depleted horseshoe crab populations. They used to, there was a, a, a determined extermination program for horseshoe crabs because they were considered a pest. Decades and decades and decades, unregulated harvest for fertilizer. And then an era where they were literally paying people to kill them. There was no market for them. It was just wow. kill them. Right. Because, oh. oh, they eat the clams. So we got to kill them. If you had a shellfish license, you were supposed to kill horseshoe crabs. But people have been around a long time. Remember that that language was in your shellfish permit into wow. the 70s. I think you've got to kill, break off the tail, throw it above the high tide oh, line. That's awful. And so basically just slaughtering them. And now we recognize their ecological importance. The management further south is completely driven by their ecological importance. And we haven't yet gotten there and recognizing that here in Massachusetts, we're years and years behind every other state on the East Coast. Mm. It's gotten a little embarrassing, honestly. We're way behind. South Carolina doesn't allow bait harvest. New Jersey doesn't allow bait harvest. Several states don't allow harvest of females under the Atlantic States Marine Fishery Commission. And so here in Massachusetts, we sort of stand alone at allowing so much harvest, especially during spawning. Mm. Um, there's also the biomedical uh, fishery where they bleed them and they make um, 
the only, which is still the only FDA approved test for something called endotoxin that indicates the presence of gram negative bacteria, which is sort of the bane of the pharmaceutical manufacturing process. And so this test that big pharma companies and small pharma companies alike use comes from horseshoe crab blood. But there are synthetic alternatives that are more and more coming online and being adopted, and that will play out over time. And I think the companies know that people want them to switch to the synthetic alternatives instead of using the horseshoe crab blood-based test. It's just the FDA needs to approve the synthetic alternatives, and then the companies need to make the decision to use them. Mm-hmm. That's playing out on a, on its own sort of track. But right now, we, we're very focused on getting rid of the bait harvest, which makes no sense at all here in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And there's a plan to transition. The, we don't want to hurt anybody's income or livelihood. These side gigs people have, nobody's really making a living harvesting horseshoe crabs. It's just something you do on the side. But, you know, to make up for that income, can we harvest green crabs? Mm-hmm. Um, and and the director of D- Division of Marine Fisheries has proposed this as well. Can is there some money to transition some of these harvesters over to green crabs, which are invasive? We don't need a limit on those. They yeah. don't need to be quotas. They're invasive, right? And people are dying for something to use green crabs for. Yeah. Um, and they think they can use them for bait with the whelk if they mix it with some other things. And you know, folks are looking at that on the vineyard and grad students and so forth. And so it's a fascinating topic, mm. but the basic bullet point of this whole spiel is. <laughs> We have an opportunity over the next, you know, three weeks plus, really, to let the Division of Marine Fisheries know. We had fifteen hundred people comment in the first twenty-four hours through wow. the Mass Audubon website. Like people love horseshoe crabs, mm-hmm. Mindy. They're dying to yeah. from the from P Town to the Berkshires. You know, they associate them with their childhood memories of the beach, and they don't understand this. The way we manage them now seems like we're still trying to get rid of them, and they want to change it. Yeah. Um, and so. Mm-hmm. The, the email to comment is marine.fish at, uh, let's see, it is marine.fish at mass.gov. And you can look up um, the Division of Marine Fisheries proposed regulations. It might not be that easy to find. Maybe best to go through the Mass Audubon website. Yeah. But just drop them a line, say, yes, please protect horseshoe crabs. Uh, we need to recover their population. All right. Um, Sully writes, uh, saw this bird in my garden last Thursday, was on the ground for quite a while, was wondering what you might think it is. I sent you that photo. Did you get it? Yeah. Let me let me open it up here. And what do you think it is, Mindy? I don't you know, I I just took a quick glance. I didn't even I didn't even really look because I'm sure you identify this bird a lot better than I would identify it. It's a it's a sharp shinned hawk. It's a little, and I'm saying that very definitively, even though it's a very small little thumbnail-y picture, but I can see the way the streaking, it's a young one, I can see the way the streaking is on the side, um, and the head is very round and small, which tells me it's a sharp shinned and not a Cooper's. So in the yard looking for a little snack. Yeah, Yeah. and that's the less common one. You know, Cooper's hawks are more common. Yeah, that's a sharp, definitely a sharp shinned hawk. one that was probably born this past summer, you know, last year. Um, and it's getting through its first winter and yeah. w- they love to hunt birds at bird feeders and in neighborhoods. And yeah. right. we've, we've kind of made a, a cornucopia for, for these birds by, you know, concentrating birds at bird feeders. I never, I don't know. I haven't been seeing Cooper's hawks hunting my bird feeders. I typically oh. don't or, or sharp shinned. 
Um, but well, it, it's it's what one of the things that they do. Yep. All right. Let's talk to Joan, giving us a call from East Harwich. Hi, Joan. Good morning there. I saw a uh, red-tailed hawk on the corner of Bay Road and uh, Church Street on Saturday. It was sitting up on the wires, and the hawks, uh, the crows were all flying around it, and they couldn't have cared less. <laughs> but the reason I'm calling is, uh, first of all, did you watch the Superb Owl show on on Sunday? Yes. The TV is so complicated now. It's like, wait, we, we do a free trial with this, and we, oh, you know, we don't know, have cable right? anymore. And so, good lord, it was just my TV wouldn't stream that channel. It, you know, we had to go to the other TV. But yes, the Superb Owl. Yes, uh, otherwise known as the Big Game. Don't they sue you if you say Super Bowl? <laughs> you have to say the Big Game. Oh my. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I did. The I did I'm see it. Is on. I put out my. Uh, he did bird baths just before the wicked cold, and the next morning, the one on the deck, which holds about a quart of water, was empty, and the whole deck area around it was full of birdie poop. <laughs> and then the front yard, which holds a gallon of water, that was also empty, and also birdie poop. Robins uh, are not enough my of the, favorite. It's food. enough of the technical terms. Let's you know. Let's keep it simple <laughs> for the people here. It was. Robins are not my favorite bird. I have one robin. Wait, who's been what? What's, oh, wait, what's, a minute. wait a minute. What's Jackson, wrong? Jackson would have yeah. something to say about that. <clears throat> Joan, what's wrong with robins? <laughs> they did it. Anyway, I have, I have one robin who's been here since the summer. Lovely. They thought bird. it was a poop deck. <laughs> and he, he's on the deck. He doesn't do anything on the deck. He drinks water. He bathes. And he picks around in the, in the seed, and he finds stuff, and I put out raisins for him, and he eats those. But uh, the others, I don't know where they came from. How did they know that the uh, water was free of ice? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. They're always looking. I mean, yeah. So first of all, uh, birds are not housebroken. If you're going to invite them over, it's good to know that. Well, the three cats Keep your expectations reasonable. Room last year did not leave anything for me to clean up. They will very well behave. They were housebroken. <laughs> I see. Yeah. I see. Joan, thank you. But, Thanks for the call. <laughs> yeah. You know, we just had, we had the robins that came in and, uh, you know, went to the holly trees. And it was funny. We were watching. There's a few and a few more flying. It's almost like they're they're calling, hey, guys, over here. We got these holly berries. It was really fun to watch. Yeah. Yes. Um, robins are funny. So they're moving around in these big flocks eating fruit. But then you'll get the loner robins. I'm sure other people see this, too. You'll get the loner robin that's just territorial about your suet or whatever. Mm. Like, it's out there every day. You see it chasing other things. Every winter, I get one of these robins that's <laughs> territorial. And I'm wondering, like, how does that – why is it not in those flocks that are flying around? How did it decide to go rogue? Yeah. Lone wolf. Uh, is it local? Is it a local one that never left? I don't think so. I mean, they seem to all disappear at a certain point, And then we get these other ones that come in high during cold fronts in the fall so it's just it's just endless you know the the, the questions about birds right. even the most common pedestrian backyard birds are just full of mystery yep yep for sure I love it yeah carol writes i did not see any juncos in my yard this winter do they still winter on cape cod yeah they've never been big on the cape i'm i maybe they wintered more here um 
back when it was, I don't know. I, I, I'm not going to speculate, but <laughs> they prefer inland locations more. Like when I do, when I go inland in the winter to do a Chris, couple of Christmas bird counts there, they're way more juncos than I see on the Cape. But I there, there's a flock in my neighborhood. Uh, sometimes there's a dozen. I see them on my morning walks. Occasionally they come through the yard, but they tend to hang out near another yard I walk by. But, you know, they're around. They're, they're just not as numerous as they are off Cape. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, you know, we just don't have what juncos prefer in terms of winter habitat. But I, I've been seeing them. Yeah. All right. Joe in West Harwich says, last month, Mark said he was sure that there would be no snowy owl sightings on the Cape this winter. <laughs> I thought he said part of the reason was that snowy owls did not mate this year. I'm wondering how that could happen. Did all of the female snowy owls suddenly get headaches? <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Very good. Uh, right. It's they just they just didn't feel like it. No, it's about the lemmings. Uh, and so the lemmings are these little um, furry little mammals that are um, bigger than a mouse. You know, they're fat, arctic uh, little mammals that have these population cycles that determine snowy owl breeding success. And they seem to be on a four year cycle. So I don't think it'll be, it's not going to be zero forever, hopefully. As long as the lemmings cycle back up, then the snowy owls will have a good breeding year and then we'll see somewhere closer to our usual number. Two zero years in a row because it was zero last year. I've, I'm not aware of that mm. happening. And so that's a little concerning. There's concern about snowy owl, longer term breeding failures, Climate change is, really hits the Arctic harder than it does other parts of the world. Uh, proportionally, more warming is happening uh, happening near the poles, and so obviously that could impact snowy owls by destabilizing the weather up there. And who knows what it'll do to you know population cycles of prey species. Mm. Um, I think uh, more Western Canada there's been concern about that, but ours seem to come from like Arctic Quebec. And I uh, and it just it just seems like two years in a row they have not had enough breeding success for any. I mean they're not extinct. They're, it's just you need a certain amount of young to be produced to be seeing a lot of them further south because most of them, like an adult snowy owl, is more likely to winter up at the edge of the pack ice in the Arctic. Still, uh, it's just incredible. Their, their life history. You think about, like, we look out the window and this, and we go, oh, the birds must be freezing. Think of how a snowy owl is mm-hmm. up in, you know, at the edge of the pack ice. Right. There's no day, there's no light, right? It's just dark all the time. And cold. There, which I would say you're an owl, who cares, I guess. Um, do they get seasonal affective disorder? I don't know. <laughs> uh, but they're hunting ducks in these holes in the pack ice up there. Um and so, and then hopefully those adults survive and can live to breed when the lemming population is up. And then we'll get back to seeing snowy owls down here again. And I don't think, I don't think Massachusetts ever gets zero. Like I'm sure Norm Smith, the um, retired Mass Audubon sanctuary director up, up there in Blue Hills, who was Mr. Snowy Owls, studied them for decades and decades um, at Logan. Uh, I'm pretty sure he's had at least a couple. And then, so then he'll release them in the first part of the winter at Duxbury Beach. So there's always a, a chance you could see one at Duxbury Beach that Norm brought there. But really, I'm not aware of any on the Cape and Islands. Yeah. 
And, you know, there's a little bit, there's just more of a trend of hiding owl sightings, like an e-bird. Um, but I don't think it's that. I think genuinely there have not it's been not any. any yeah. I've, I've not heard of any. All right. Janet's giving us a call from West Tisbury. Hi, Janet. Hello. I'm soaking, ringing wet, but I'm calling you. <laughs> I'm not doing the uh, I have juncos. Oh, yay. 25. Wow, 25. Good. Oh, that's a good, that's a good wow. number. Yeah, they come in the morning and at the end of the day. And I've had them for years. Mm. Where and are you I again? What, you, what is West, your surrounding? West Tisbury. West Tisbury. What, yeah, okay, what does the surrounding landscape land, look like? Uh, acre and a half of land. Um, okay. Oak trees, pine trees. Then, of course, yeah. you know, it's clear around the house and in the horse paddock. Yeah. Oh. yeah. And they were here just about 10 minutes ago again. Oh, oh how nice. Do, so, yeah. do, they, do they get to eat the leftovers that the horses don't get to or... Is there some... I only have one horse, praise the Lord. Uh, no, <laughs> yeah. I feed them. Uh, I have a lot of ground feeders, so I feed on the ground. And now there are um, there's a woodpecker out there, and oh, there's a little junco. And what else? Yeah, oh, no, twenty five is a good number for the Cape and Islands. Yeah, that's yeah. Um, more a number I'd expect from an, an inland location in the winter. So yeah. lucky you. Yeah, Jenna, thank you. Thanks for sharing that. 866-999-4626 is our number. That's 866-999-4626. Our email address, thepoint at capeandislands.org. And we'll have more after a break. You're listening to The Point. It's bird news this morning with Mark Faraday. 866-999-4626 is our number. Our email address, thepoint at capeandislands.org. Christine in Vineyard Haven writes, uh, The other day we noticed a dead buffle head, about 50% eaten, on a dock in Lake Tashmu on the vineyard. Another buffle head was treading water below the dock. Any idea what might have killed this beautiful little bird? Yeah. Um, you know, lots of things, potentially peregrine falcon. If it was a snowy owl year, I would say a snowy owl. I think they eat a lot of buffle heads. They really focus on ducks when they winter on Cape Cod, but I don't, I don't think it was that, um, another owl, but, but falcons, uh, particularly peregrine falcon, the old name for the peregrine falcon was the duck hawk. Um, and a classic thing was to see them chasing down teal and things like that. Um, you know, because they're bigger. You know, a merlin is a smaller falcon that would focus on smaller birds and sh- and shorebirds, sandpipers, and things. Um, but but certainly that's a possibility. I mean, lots of even things, a bald yeah. eagle. Yeah, if something was wrong with it, then a hawk could have gotten it. But um, yeah, it's 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 a bit of a mystery. But those mm-hmm. are the those are the suspects I would round up. Right. Uh, Aaron writes two questions for you. How do we get birds to stop living in the nooks on our houses between gutters and the roof? And should we worry about tracking in Jardia on our shoes or breathing it? Jardia. Um, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't know about that. I, I've never I, heard of that. I don't think I, I don't think I would. I don't know. It's something I would have to look up more, but I don't think it would be a huge concern. Um yeah, I, I don't know. Well, like, what are the birds? First of all, um, is it is it house sparrows? I mean, the obvious answer would be to put up some kind of physical barrier, just do the work, the kind of common sense work to put up some netting or something, so they can't get into those places if it's that much of an issue. Mm-hmm. I, beyond that, I I mean, yeah. I don't know, and it's hard not knowing what birds. I mean, there are certain birds I'd be like, yay, they're nesting, you know, <laughs> yeah. barn swallows, yay. 
Uh, sparrows, you know, not so much, yeah. <laughs> right, house sparrows are invasive and can cause problems for bluebirds and things, so you don't want to encourage those. So I would say, yes, if you could just put up some kind of bird netting or something. It's sort of the same answer when woodpeckers are repeatedly getting at a certain part of the house. Yeah. You know, if you you tried the mylar strips and whatever, just, just put up some netting that um, shouldn't be that obvious for people to see, but it would, would physically keep them away from, from those places. Yeah. Right. 866-999-4626 is our number. Our email address, thepoint at capeandislands.org. So bald eagles, we've got bald eagles nesting right now, right? Yeah. And so <clears throat> who knows how many pairs, at least two that we know of that are now nesting on the Cape, which 10 years ago, there were none that we knew of. So that's the latest big news in, in birds moving on to the Cape. And so, you know, I know where this one nest is on the outer Cape and I checked on it on January 30th and it looked like it was being incubated. It was clearly being incubated. The bird was wet way down in the nest um, and they do start early. But then I went a few days ago and both members of the pair were just sort of perched next to the nest and nobody was in the nest, which... I'm not sure what that means. I'll keep checking on it. But this is a nest that fledged two chicks last year. This is an experienced mm -hmm. pair that has already knows how to fledge young. They fledged young last year. And then there's another pair somewhere in Barnstable. I, I haven't heard anything about that nest. And then there are probably others. I keep convincing myself I'll find a nest somewhere around the Harwich Brewster Ponds there. Um, uh, but I think what we'll see more and more, and it's right there in Falmouth, Mindy. Uh, I just... Somebody was posting yesterday, I think Kevin Friel, last year there were some eagles hanging out on an osprey nest. I, I want to say right in like that, right around downtown Falmouth somewhere. Um, and the eagles are back at that nest and, and looking like full adults that would be ready to have a proper nest. Hmm. And so it might not be until next year, who knows, but that's something to watch right there in Falmouth in a very public place, I think. And, it's something that I've been saying for a few years now to watch out for because there'll just be more and more of it, right? Because as the eagle population goes up, they have the advantage of being here in January and February when the ospreys are in, you know, Brazil, unable to defend their nests. Mm -hmm. And so the eagles can set up shop on these nests that they didn't build and just be like, hey, you know, this is fine. A turnkey, a turnkey house. <laughs> but then when the I'm ospreys come back, there's a little bit of a battle, right? Exactly. That's And so when the osprey for the male comes back first, and we saw this play out at Cedar Pond in Orleans by the Rotary, a very visible public nest there. Um, and so the male is just trying to drive away these eagles, get out of here. They're viciously territorial about their nests. Battles over fish, the ospreys pretty much always lose. The big, strong eagle just takes their fish away from them. And you can see this more and more, too, like at the herring runs in spring. But anyway, but with a nest, the ospreys are, are not having it. And they often win the battle, especially especially if it's just because it's likely to be first time nester eagles. Maybe they're just five years old. They're just they're just a couple of kids <laughs> yeah. trying to trying to start a life and they don't know what's going on. Why is this bird attacking us? They're not experienced adults because experienced adults have a nest already somewhere. So these are probably first time nesting bald eagles that are easier for the ospreys to drive away. I think that's what happened at Cedar Pond last year. But meanwhile, and uh, quietly, 
Eagles had taken over another nest nearby and, and the Ospreys did not successfully drive them away. Um, like I said, eventually those Eagles fledged two chicks. So just something to, to be on the lookout for. Don't assume it's an Eagle. Don't assume it's an Osprey and an Osprey nest. Gulls sit in yeah. them. Red-tailed hawks sit in them. Like look carefully at what you're seeing before reporting things, but certainly be on the lookout for actual Eagles to be, um, setting up shop or at least showing interest in osprey nests right around now Mm because this is when they would start having eggs and and getting serious about nesting and the ospreys won't be back until march right yeah mid-march would be the earliest and then more and more i expect legitimate early reports well ahead of that just because the population is so high um and you know kind of winter's getting warmer on average i think with those two things we can I'm a little less skeptical of the report in, you know, the first week in March now than I used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, oftentimes it is a mistaken, right. mistaken identity. It's typically like St. Patrick's Day and beyond. That's when we get the very first ospreys and the very first piping plovers. But even that, there's piping plovers that have been on and off at what Seagull Beach and Yarmouth all winter. Hmm. And they don't normally winter here. Right. So everything's crazy. Yeah. What you know? What's early? What's, what's late? Yeah. What's what's overwintering? And it's hard to know. Listener West Tisbury has twenty two juncos there. Thank you for sharing that. So yep, juncos well, are juncos around. are all on the vineyard. Yeah. I guess. Jeez. And Kate, who knew? Yeah, Kate and Falmouth says, uh, "Am I too late to put up my owl box? If not, where is the best place, height, direction to put it up?" Uh. I'm sorry, the first part of the question about was, where to put she, the box yeah, was... Owl, she wants to know if, if it's too late. Can she still put up her owl box now? And if so, No, no, it's yeah. never it's it's never too late, no. Um, just, you know, because even even if it's after when they would nest, they can become aware of it. There are, birds that nest in cavities are always doing an inventory of where the cavities are. And so... If they're nesting somewhere else, but then they see your box, even though you put it up too late for nesting this year, they've made a mental note of that and they'll, you know, check it out over the fall and winter. So it's never too late and it's, and it's not too late for them to nest in it this year. Um, Screech owls are little, they're not like great horned owls that start nesting in February. Um, You know, they nest, um, you know, much later. So if you got a box up today, have reasonable expectations. The most likely thing you'll get is gray squirrels. That's typically, that's usually what I have in mind. I still haven't had a nest in mine. I've had owls peeking out of it a couple of different times, including for a few days, but nothing has stuck in the, the really the only consistent inhabitants of mine have been gray squirrels. So, um, but a lot of people are, some people are lucky and they get an owl right away. Mm. And I hate those people. <laughs> so how, what, what Just kind of height do you, you know, where do you put it? Is there a preference for, you know, where you put these boxes? Yeah. The best, the best place to, for that information is Cornell's nest watch, um, project. And so they have information, they have design plans, mm. And best practices for what direction to face it and how far should it be from nearby trees or, you know, should it be near an edge and all that kind of stuff for every species that uses nest boxes is at Cornell's Nest Watch. Mm -hmm. And that's a um, citizen science project where people record the results of nesting in boxes either at their house or Mass Audubon uses that for all of our nest box work. 
Um, and, and again, they have information about best practices for how high to hang a box, what direction to face it, the dimensions, the size of the hole, all that stuff. But, right. you know, the t- typical screech owl, you know, you don't want it five feet high. <clears throat> um, you know, they're more likely to be nesting, you know, 10 or 12 feet up. Like I have to access mine with a ladder. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't have, but it, you know, it doesn't have to be 40 feet high. Right. It, right. It, also. Right. Marilyn in Chatham says, we have one of those territorial robins every year, standing guard over the feeders and scaring all the other birds away. He's out there right now, but he's actually sharing the feeders. We also have a cooper's hawk that stakes out a shrub in our yard. It hears birds hiding in there and waits. He'll dive into it or hop down on the ground and look up into it, occasionally making jabs into the shrub. Usually a little bird will finally make a break for it and the hawk goes after it. Very exciting. Also, we've had an otter and a muskrat in a pond next to our house. We see the otter almost every day. Very nice. Thank you for wow. sharing that. Yeah. Uh, let's see, Hillary. Otter and a mu- Yeah, otter uh, and a, a muskrat. Yeah. Well, I, before you move on, I just want to say that was a really good description of a classic hunting technique of Cooper's hawks. And so they, these are woodland hawks. They don't, they don't need to be out in the open like red tails prefer to be. They are very happy diving into the densest privet hedge or whatever, and they'll come out the other side with a house sparrow or a song sparrow, whatever was trying to hide in there. And they're famous for this. And they'll walk around. They have those long chicken legs and they'll walk around on the ground waiting for something to slam into a window at your feeders or, you know, make itself vulnerable as it's trying to hide in a bush. I had one take a song sparrow out of my old Christmas tree that I put oh, by wow. my bird feeders a couple of years ago. But that's that was a great description of, yeah. of something Cooper's Hawks love to do. All right. Hillary says, <clears throat> my view Um, We view nesting eagles on the lower cape at a respectful distance. Recently, there's been a drone flying around the nest and agitating the eagles, causing them to leave the nest. Is there any regulation against this? There should be, right? Don't be bothering those eagles. Well, oh, that's really interesting. Um, Yeah, that needs to be documented and reported. Try to figure out who it is. Um, If if it's clearly disturbing the eagles, then it's a violation of, you know, ver- federal and state regulations. Uh, you can't be harassing them. You can't be altering their behavior around a nest. But I will say there have been, I mean, that's unequivocal. There are situations where researchers have been able to use drones to monitor nests, but they're flying them high and, you know, doing it in a scientific way, assessing behavior, making sure you're not altering their behavior. Um, you know, someone who, the person who runs our bird banding station, James Junda, he did that for his master's work out in the prairies of Canada, looking at using drones to monitor these kind of scattered nests out in the big prairies out there. And, uh, it was successful, but it has to be done right. Mm-hmm. And this is just some photographer just good photos wanting, wanting to get cool imagery and not yeah. really doing the right thing here. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's not good. Yeah. All right, so this is uh, not today, maybe, but this is a good time to what see waterfowl on the ponds and seabirds in the harbors. So <laughs> once the snow is done, <laughs> that's what you, yeah. you you might want to take a little visit to the pond or the harbor and yeah, this check is, out the birds. Yeah, it's it's really you know it's it's bleak, but it's peak time for going out and seeing ducks at our ponds, especially if you get when you get some ice and it concentrates them, then you can really sort of sort through them. Um, it's helpful to have a scope, but you can, depending on the pond, you can do pretty well with binoculars. 
And so there, there's just a long list of ducks, things that people don't think of. You know, during the breeding season, very few ducks, freshwater ducks breed here. But in winter, the numbers go way up, you know, widgeon and teal and gadwall. And you might see pintail. You might see a Eurasian widgeon among the among the American widgeon and all the diving ducks, both species of scop and ringneck ducks and buffleheads and goldeneye. Wow. And they're all they're beautiful. I mean, they're gorgeous. The, all the three species of mergansers are likely to be on the same pond right now. That happens as the winter goes on, even though they have very different habitat preferences overall. Red-breasted like saltwater, hooded's like little ponds like wood ducks, and then common mergansers like big reservoirs. That you can find all three of them on the same pond right now, and so it's just a great time to go out and enjoy the wide variety of winter waterfowl we have. And some of the same things will be in the harbors sometimes, especially especially if, if ponds freeze up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the ponds with a lot of eagles, I'm uh, sorry, with a lot of ducks, uh, uh, spoiler alert, um, will often have eagles too. So yeah. those tend to be good places to look for both. All right. Mark Faraday, Science Coordinator at Mass Audubon's Wellfleet Bay Wildlife Sanctuary, joins us the second Tuesday of every month. Thanks, Mark. All right. Catch you next time. I'm Mindy Todd. Thank you for listening. Point is produced by Amy Vince. The executive producer is Mindy Todd. Production assistance from Jenny Junker and Dan Tridel. Theme music by Benjamin Burdery and William Coulter. 